In this part one of a highly instructive two-part episode, Michael Tafoya shares the story of his life journey from living in a home with loving parents in the little village neighborhood of Chicago and being a nearly straight-A student to experiencing the childhood trauma of repeated victimization by gang violence, even though he was not a gang member, which eventually led him in his teenage years to make the fateful decision that to survive, he would need to, as he puts it, become what he feared. He tells how he picked up the gun and became one of the most feared gang members in his neighborhood, which set him on a path leading, ultimately, only a few days after his 18th birthday to shoot and kill a rival gang member and wound another. He describes his lengthy prison experience, starting in maximum security, and how he came to make the dangerous decision to change his life. Dangerous because of potential punishment from leaders of his gang who were in prison with him as well as vulnerability to retaliation from members of the rival gang of his victims. He describes how, during the latter part of his incarceration in the Danville Correctional Center, his participation in the in-prison Education Justice Project of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign was a transformational experience for him not only because of what he learned and the college degree he earned, but because of how he was treated as a human being and scholar. This part one ends with Michael saying, In 2018, when I was released, is when the next chapter of my life starts. You won't want to miss hearing the rest of the story. The most important part about who Michael is and what he is doing today. But first, let's listen to part one. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm your host, David Risley. Our guest today is Michael Tafoya. Michael, welcome to the program. It's my pleasure to be here. Michael, when you and I first met, back when I was working in the governor's office as director of public safety policy, as I listened to you tell your story, and as over the next ensuing few months, year, I heard you share your insights and perspective in various meetings that we both attended, the thought was in my mind, this is a young man with a story that needs to be told with perspectives that need to be heard. And this is your opportunity to do that. Um, That's a lot to try to encompass, but I'll I'll do my best. I think that we fail to realize how we as a society fail our communities. Um, We fail our youth in various ways, shapes, and forms. Um, Obviously, it starts with the family structure. um, And there's there's many communities that lack that. Um, there's no father figures in the house. There's no male figures or at least positive ones in the community. Then we go into the education system and they're overwhelmed, not supported well enough, um, which continues the the pathway right to, to a, a negative outcome. Um, we have the 
justice system, the policing that's disconnected from the communities that it's serving. Um, then we have these sentences and the time served, which really doesn't um, rehabilitate someone or put someone in a position to succeed when they come back out. And once they come out, they're basically lost, not knowing which way to go and where to find success since you continue to carry the sex um, on your back and it's like imprinted on your forehead every time you try to do a job interview, every time you try to get an apartment and it continues to hold you back. So I think that as a society, we fail to recognize that we have human beings who need to be nurtured um, and we need a system in place that could support them in a very uh, healthy way. Well, people who have been listening to this podcast have heard me say <clears throat> repeatedly that in my view, we need to move in our criminal justice system and the way we imagine criminal and practice criminal justice from a punishment paradigm to a problem-solving paradigm. And you can't solve a problem until you first understand the problem to be solved. Now, we usually think that coming up with the solutions is the hardest thing. I'm not so sure that's true. I think the most challenging thing is overcoming biases, preconceived ideas, assumptions, and all those things that are built into our cultural lens that we, that we view the criminal justice system through and really understand the problem that we're trying to solve. Because if we really understand that problem, which is one of the purposes of this program, then I think the solutions tend to come into much clearer focus. And without really understanding the problem, the solutions that are needed may not resonate with people, may not make as much sense. So let's focus first on the problem. And let's talk about the community that you came from and the, and the circumstances, including your own personal choices, that led to you going to prison. Yeah, so I grew up in Little Village. Um, I was born in 1980, so I grew up there in the 80s and in the 90s. It, it's in Chicago. Um, it, it's towards the west side. Um, it's mostly Mexican, predominantly Mexican. Um, so that neighborhood, um, it's poor. Uh, my father had came from Mexico at the age of approximately 17. Uh, my mother came from Puerto Rico at about the age of 14. Neither could speak English. Um, they ended up meeting at a park and, you know, got married and had me and my two brothers. Um, my father worked all the time, um, six days a week at a factory, anywhere between eight and 12 hours a day. Um, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, very present, very loving. Um, me and my brothers went through school. We went and got really good grades at school. Um, I had mostly all straight A's. At the age of 12 um, is the first time that I uh, was exposed to direct violence. I had been exposed to violence my whole life, being that substance abuse, that gangs, that um, fights, that attempt murders, murders were carried out in front of me or me seeing the aftermath. I grew up next to a bar, so I seen a lot of very vicious fights. I seen uh, guys get hit in the head with a sewer cap. I seen a guy get his eye knocked out with a pool cue. Um, but at the age of 12 was the first time that was directed towards me. Uh, me and my best friend, we were horse playing, coming out of school, pushing each other around, all that. My mom was with us, um, walking us home. Um, when we crossed one of the streets, my mother was probably about 15, 20 feet behind me. A guy came out that side street and unloaded a gun on me. Um, here I am, a 12-year-old kid, coming back from school with my mom and my best friend. Never been in any problems like that, um, nothing at all. Uh, and yeah, someone unloaded a gun on me. And that became the beginning 
of me experiencing a lot of violence directed towards me. Okay, now let me hit the pause button there for a minute. I've got to ask. Somebody just stepped out and unloaded their gun and were shot quite a few rounds at you. Yeah. Well, first question, did any of them hit you? No, thankfully no. Thankfully no. Or your mom? No. Anybody else? No, no no, no one was struck, but it was evident that it was directed at me. Why? I don't know. To this day, I don't know. My only assumption is where I grew up. Because over there in Little Village, like most of the neighborhoods in Chicago, every few blocks there's a different gang. And if you grow up on one of the blocks, um, they automatically assume that you're a gang member from that area. Now, and they didn't recognize you and so therefore by definition you would be from some rival or competing gang or something like that that would be my assumption like i said because going forward i got chased and shot at and beaten up by a few of the gangs that were outside of my neighborhood where i grew up at now let me tell you to be shot at by somebody who's fired how many rounds do you would you estimate it was at least nine shots Okay, that's a traumatic experience. Yes. For anybody of any age, 12 years old, that leaves a mark. And then to have these other experiences, they each leave a mark. And when they're accumulated, one on top of each other, and then observing violence, that leaves a mark. This is chronic trauma. Yes. And chronic trauma changes people. It alters you. Talk to us about that. Well, for me, like I said, and for many, we grow up in these neighborhoods and we accept it as normal. And yeah, at the beginning, it's a shock. But after a while, it's just normal. Um, At the time, I didn't know, but you develop a, a new normal. Yeah, your whole system changes over and you adapt to your surroundings. And now you become in this um, survival mode of fight, flight, or freeze. So when shootings will happen where normal people might be in shock, I would be like in combat mode and looking to duck and run and see where it was coming from. Um, so I could figure out what my next step was going to be. Because I definitely didn't want to run down the street where they were shooting from or where they could come from. So I would turn around and go the other way. Um, well, whatever was the easiest route. But yeah, it, it becomes a second nature to you, sadly. Well, when that's part of the environment that you're growing up in during your developmental years, it would be unrealistic to expect that you'd end up with the same career aspirations or even ability to concentrate or motivation to concentrate on subjects in school and studies and things of that sort, that we would hope people at that age would be able to think about, concentrate on, devote themselves to, to have an eye toward a future. Well, if your eye is toward survival rather than a future, your whole perspective, your trajectory in life has changed in addition to the trauma and the effects of that. So these things are accumulating in your story already. Yeah. So after this incident, like I said, um, it became prominent where I got chased, I got shot at, I got beaten up. At the age of 14, I graduated eighth grade. I went on to high school. Um, I was accepted to two schools. One was one of the better public schools in Morgan Park on 111th and Morgan on the south side of Chicago, far south side. And the other one was a local high school, Farragut High School, which is known to be one of the worst high schools in Chicago, um, dealing with a lot of gang violence, high dropout rates, um, and even race uh, violence, racial violence. 
I went there. Um, I went to Morgan Park for the first approximately two months and I had straight A's. I would wake up at about five o'clock in the morning and get home at about five o'clock at night just because of the long bus ride and everything. And um, I got tired of doing that for about two months because I had no type of life. I would wake up tired. I'll go to school, come back. I'll be tired. I'll just go to sleep. I wouldn't see my friends or nothing until the weekend. So I asked my parents if I could transfer to the local high school. I said, yeah, of course, especially since I was doing so good. I go to my local high school and within two weeks I dropped out. Um, right. That place, I, I went from going to school to going like into a jungle. You walk into the school, they have these metal detectors, heavy policing. It doesn't feel like you're walking into school. Um, and then once you go in there, it's just wild. Um, the way people act, um, the threats of violence um, on the fourth floor. I remember people used to be getting high and drinking in the bathrooms. Um, and people just show up for a little while and then they'll take off, they'll cut school and everything. And it was just normal. I knew way too many people. So within two weeks, I ended up falling in line and doing what everybody else did. Uh, and I dropped out. I quickly realized that I could pick up the phone every day at home at about 3.30 when the automated school system would call to let inform my parents that I didn't go to school so my parents wouldn't find out. I quickly found out that if I didn't miss division once a month, that I wouldn't get dropped from school. So I would go to school once a month um, up until third period where I had to go to division and then I would cut school and not come back for a month. And I did that for a while um, until my parents finally realized what, what was going on. Um, okay, let me, let's hit the pause button yes. again here. So you've had two different school experiences, education experiences. You've probably thought, how would my life be different if I hadn't switched schools? What do you think? Well, yeah, I, I did a lot of that 20 years incarcerated. Yeah. What is. A lot of time to think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I dropped out of school and then um, I was... I still wasn't a really bad kid. Like all I would do was smoke weed um, and go to daytimes with my friends and hang out all the time. That was basically like my, my life purpose at the moment was just hanging out with my friends. It wasn't until the age of 16 where the next big thing happened in my life. Um, at the age of 16 in the summertime, my brother, um, he's seven years older than me. I have two brothers, they're twins. My brother was walking with his girlfriend in the neighborhood. They went into one of the small grocery stores to buy something to drink. And when he went in there, there was a time when they used to have arcades inside the, the grocery stores and people would hang out in there. Um, there were some gang members from another area in there playing and they noticed my brother and everybody knew my brothers, the twins are popular. They could walk anywhere free. Um, they started telling him how they were going to kill me. And yeah, that they were at me, this, that, and everything. And my brother tried calming them down and defending me like in a healthy way explain to him that our family doesn't gangbang when i involved with that like he knows that i've been chased i've been shot at i've been beaten up but i don't gangbang like that's not in our family well i guess they got tired of him speaking so they jumped him and they beat him up they slapped his girlfriend around too um it was around five o'clock at night i used to always cook dinner with my mom and i was right there cooking dinner my brother came and his girlfriend came my mom went over there to greet them and talk to them when i look over I see my mom crying. I run over to the living room and long story short, I end up slapping the cap off my brother's head to see his face. And his face was really bad, really, really bad. Um, and I look over to his girlfriend and I see the side of her face is red. Now I'm standing in the living room at the age of 16, feeling that it's my fault that my brother just got jumped 
And because he was defending you. Yeah. Like I brought this on my family, you know, even though that's not the case, but at the time, that's what I thought. So now what do I do? How do I protect my family? It's no longer about protecting myself. I've been doing pretty good at that for four years uh, at that time. Um, basically just running away from things and being alert. So now what do I do? It's my fault. What do I do? I can't call the cops. Um, one is that we'll be known as snitches, as zoo pigeons, um, which will bring a whole bunch of negativity to my family. Um, the other thing is, what are the cops going to do? Nothing. There's nothing to be done. Worst case scenario, it was a fight. They're going to arrest a few people and let them go the same day. Yet we're still labeled as snitches, as, as stool pigeons, as rats. Yeah, from the police perspective, just because you say something happened or so-and-so did it, that's not enough to make a case that's going to stick. Yeah. So I did what I knew. And at the age of 16, that same day, within 30 minutes, I was talking to a friend that I had grown up with, gone to school with, that was in a gang, and I asked him for a gun. And they gave it to me. And within a few minutes later, I was in the other people's, you know, the other guy's territory, standing in the middle of the street with a gun on me while they laughed at me across the street, knowing that they just jumped my brother and they're getting ready to jump me. Well, all the laughing stopped when I pulled out the gun and I started shooting. Um, at the time, I was yelling at them, trying to explain it, and they were laughing at me and I was crying. Um, my voice was cracking. And I, I still tried. I, I tried to explain. I tried to explain. But when I realized they weren't going to listen is when I just shot. Um, and that's something common in trauma. In order to stop that which you fear, you become it. To cease fearing it. So for the next two years of my life, that's what I dedicated myself to. Becoming the most feared individual um, in that area so that my family could be safe. I don't know if you've heard of a criminologist by the name of Lonnie Athens. But I did a couple of episodes of this program on a process that he calls violentization, which is a progressive, it's almost like a disease, but it's a, it is an adaptive reaction to chronic trauma as people who are victims of violence gradually go through, starting with a period of defiance and belligerence to becoming what they becoming what they fear in the sense that they conclude this is a dog eat dog world and if you're going to survive you've got to be a bigger dog and people have to fear you so they become people who are feared because they are more violent than the people they are afraid would be violent to them and it just keeps on going from there because they develop a reputation now you can't back away from it because then you would be vulnerable to retaliation and the process just escalates. He calls this progressive process violentization. So if anybody who's listening is interested in that, uh, then go back to the episodes, two episodes about this process of violentization. But what you've described is this classic process of violentization as an adaptive reaction to chronic trauma and fear of violence and, as you put it, becoming what you fear. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. You know, you, you have limited options and you're thrown in these most chaotic situations. Um, so you do the best that you can with what you have. Um, yeah. And for the next two years, that's what I dedicated my life to. I never put the gun back down. 
I always had it on me. I was always running around like a maniac. Um, I was the first one to jump when there was a, a, any sign of trouble. Um, and in 1998, on July 26, all this came to a crashing halt. Um, when at about, I believe it was 3.30 in the morning, um, I jumped in a car with two of my friends. And we drove a couple blocks. And I jumped out. One was the getaway driver. The other one was the lookout. And I was the shooter. And I proceeded to walk up to two individuals um, who were disrespecting my gang, um, who disrespect me right there in that moment. And with a smile on my face, I unloaded my gun. And I was arrested within 10 minutes. And you say you unloaded the gun. Yeah. This time you didn't miss. No. Sadly, I didn't. Sadly, I didn't. And in the moment, I thought it was like the funniest thing in the world. Um, and I'm not like I am completely ashamed to say that. But that just lets you know how far gone I was at that time. It was two weeks after my 18th birthday. And this is where I was mentally. So they both died. Uh, one did. One yeah. died. And yeah, so I was charged with murder and attempt murder. Um, so when, when I was arrested... The two guys with me, they, they told on me. They signed statements against me. They weren't charged at all. You know, that is something, by the way, I'm going to tell you something, and our listeners something from the perspective of a former career prosecutor. That's common. I made a career of explaining to people who were in trouble that uh, who are part of an organization of some sort. First one on the bus gets the best seat. And believe me, they all want to be first on the bus or second or third. Nobody wants to be the last. Yeah. So I, I ended up getting locked up, sent to Division 11. Um, at the time, it was uh, Supermax, Division 11. And my first few months... Now you're talking about prison. In jail, Cook County Jail. At the county jail. Yeah, before I went to prison. So I, at Cook County Jail, I was there for, for a total year. But my first few months there... I was just lost. I was just going through emotions I couldn't even understand. Every day I was either drinking, um, you know, prison wine, hooch, or smoking weed or something. Okay, hold it. You're in jail. Yes. And you've got alcohol, marijuana. Yes, yes. and other drugs. And other drugs. Yeah. Well, this is something people need to understand also. It's part of the reality of jails and and prisons, it's, it's a constant problem that the people who run those institutions are fighting, but it's a reality. I've heard this over and over. Well, when you have the guys with nothing but time, they'll figure something to do with it. Um, yeah, so I, I was in there doing that every day. I, I was never sober the first um, few months, never. Since I woke up to I'd go to sleep, I'll be high on something or drinking something. And it was just a way to numb the pain. Like I was facing life in prison. Um, and I'm 18 years old, so I got at least a good 50 years of this, you know, in my future, if not more. And every day I would talk to my family. They were always worried about me. Uh, man, that phone bill went up so high. Um, at the time, the phone calls, the collect calls were about $15 a call, if not more. And they just kept telling me, call, call. My parents were so worried something was going to happen to me. At 18 years old, I, w I probably was about 5'5 five, five and weighed about 130 pounds soaking wet. So I was a little guy. Um, well, 
fast forward until about like five or six months in, I talked to my brother one day, the same one that was jumped. And during the conversation, he tells me something no one had told me before. He goes on to tell me how much my parents are suffering because of me being incarcerated and because of the life I was leading for the last couple of years of it out there. And I come to find out that my parents cry every single day, every single night. Not only that, but I come to find out that they blame themselves for the way I turned out and the position I ended up in. That hurt. That was the first time I felt pain in years. Um, my parents did not deserve this. They didn't deserve to have me to be their son the way I ended up. Um, they didn't deserve to feel the blame and the shame that came with it. Um, they were very present, very loving. They weren't perfect, but they was they were as perfect as I could have ever wished or any kid could have wished for his parents to be. They didn't abuse me. They always showed me love. I never needed for anything. There was always food. I was fortunate enough to have video games and, you know, the Jordans and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, they were very present and very loving. And I didn't know what to do now. Okay, let me hit the pause button right there to underline the importance of what you just said. Because this, again, illustrates an important point. I used to be responsible for the Project Safe Neighborhoods program in the federal central district of Illinois. And one of the things that we were, of course, trying to do is to figure out what can we do to reduce the number of people who get shot, reduce gun violence, to prevent shootings, not just react to them, but to prevent them. And research was done on what sorts of messaging gets through to people who are the potential shooters. Virtually nothing would get through to them, except one thing. And that was this message about their parents. When they were interviewed in prison afterwards, they told almost the same story that you have. And so there was a shift in the messaging. And proved to be more effective than the deterrent, the supposed deterrent of long prison sentences. That didn't work. Even seeing friends go to prison for long prison sentences with gun enhancements, that really didn't do much, have much impact to deter it. But this message about the impact of gun violence on parents, on siblings, on family... That hurt. That changed the behavior. So I'm taking this moment to underscore this so that listeners understand that what you're saying is really important. Because if you had been able to foresee that back before you pulled the trigger, it could have changed the outcome in your life and in the life of the young man who was shot. Yeah, most definitely. It definitely could have. Um, so after my brother told me that, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with it. I got off the phone with him and it was like I was in a new reality. When I turned around from that phone and I, I seen the cell doors and everything in the day room, 
it didn't feel the same way. I didn't feel high anymore. Um, I felt sad and more grounded than ever. I went to my cell um, and I was supposed to call my parents afterwards. I didn't. And I just stayed in my cell and I couldn't sleep. It was probably at about like 4, 4.30 in the morning. Um, I had been thinking the whole night, couldn't sleep the whole night. And just staring at the walls. And I came up with the best idea I could as an 18-year-old for them, for me at that time. I can't change my outcome. I'm sitting in jail. I'm facing life. It is what it is. I have no control over that. But what I can do is change the future pain I caused my parents. And all I could do is stop doing dumb stuff, negative stuff. That same day, I left the gang. I didn't pick up another drink or another drug. And I was so scared um, because of my case, because of the reputation I had built outside um, the jail and the community for those two years that I was actively gangbanging, actively shooting. A lot of people wanted me dead. See, that's what I that's what I was saying. You can't just walk away from it safely once you've developed that reputation and engaged in acts of violence. Yeah, I ended up leaving the gang um, and I was just scared. And there was a couple of times that really, really rattled me. Um, the first one was a couple of days later when I got the response from my gang. And they told me to come to church. Often that's not a good sign. Yeah, um, what does that mean? <laughs> if you're lucky, we're just going to talk to you. If you're not lucky, you're not going to make it back to the cell. You're going to go to healthcare. So come to church is not necessarily a religious invitation no and it's not one that you could pass on so i went to church and i go to catholic service i get there and i sit down next to the man um for our gang and uh, we start to talk and i don't know why but he told me he's like hey look i know your case we've heard about your background and i understand that you want to try to do you're doing this for your family and I told him, yeah, I'm doing it for my parents because they've heard enough. And my brother told me how devastated they are. And I just can't live with myself. And he went on to tell me that I was okay. I had put in enough work. Um, I was leaving a good standing. He knew that in my case, the circumstances behind it and how I got told on everything. And he told me that I was okay, that nobody was going to mess with me. At least not from our end. Um... Yeah, and I was able to walk away, which is surprisingly given the gang that I was a part of at the time. Then a couple of weeks later, I was talking at the, or probably a couple months later, should I should say, I started talking at the end of church services, trying to give people like my testimony and what I did and trying to encourage them to do something positive to think about their family, trying to inspire them. After service, as we get ready to leave, I get surrounded by like seven or eight guys from the gang that I caught the case on that I'm most currently sitting in Cook County Jail for. And as they start asking me, where are you from and what's your name? It becomes evident what I believe they're going to do. And I told them and I just kept talking to them. And I told them that I wasn't the same person, uh, but I respected whatever they were going to do. You know, I told them it is what it is and I respect it. And for some reason, they didn't put their hands on me. I still don't know why. I don't know if it was God or what it was, but they didn't. Let me let me just underscore the importance of again of something that you're saying. I mean, this decision you made 
to walk away from your gang under those circumstances made you, it wasn't just a decision to, I don't want to do this anymore. It was a decision that you knew at the time made you vulnerable because you no longer had the, or were entitled at least to the protection of your gang. And you were vulnerable to the gang of the victims of your crime for which you were in jail at that time. Okay. That's a serious decision. People talk about repentance. Repentance is real. It means change, positive change. It can be hard. That was a hard decision you made. And it's an important step toward this positive change, whether you call it repentance or reforming yourself or what reforming yourself. That was a major step deserving of respect. Yeah, it was definitely not not an easy decision um, and not a light one. And I know the consequences that could come from it, and I was okay with it. Um, If I lived my life for two years, right, I'd throw it away for nothing. Now, at least if I died or close to that, I was doing it for something. I was doing it for my parents, and that I could live with. Um, So as, as time passed on, as my year in county started to come up, um, I was trying to figure out what did the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of my life look like? Um, and I went on a journey of self-discovery. And I started reading every bit of knowledge that I could about man, about self. I read so many self-help books. I read the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, um, and so many other religious texts. I had all the positive conversations I could have with people. Um, I read a lot of philosophy. Um, and then throughout this time came my sentencing. Uh, I was going to start a bench trial in hopes of getting some type of leniency. Now, by for those who aren't aware, you had the option, the, the default setting in the, in the judicial system is a jury trial with 12 jurors that have to agree unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt before you can be convicted. Or you can waive that right to a jury trial, in other words, give it up, and be tried by the judge, which is called the bench trial. Or, of course, you can plead guilty. Yes. Those are your options. So I took a bench trial. Um, I thought it was going to be my best chance at not getting slammed, meaning not getting 60 years at 100% or something like that, or even 40. Um, And the day of my bench trial, my lawyer, he was a public defender, he came to the back and he talked to me and he told me my family was here. The victim's family was here. Uh, he said he spoke very briefly with the state prosecutor and with the judge. Not about me, just in general. They seemed to be in good spirits. He asked me if um, if I wanted to try a plea deal for a two conference. And I told him, hey, you know, like, what the heck? What's that? A 402 conference is where you plead guilty um, and you already know what your sentence is going to be because they're going to make you an offer on it. And oftentimes it's much more lenient. Um, than what they would give you if you get found guilty. So he went in, had the 402 conference with the state's attorney, and he came back to me and he told me they're willing to offer you 20 years for murder and drop the attempt murder. And the 20 years will be at 100%. And I told him, okay. He was like, "Um, so what do you want me to say? No, I'm saying, okay, like, yes, I'll take it. 
He was like, are you sure? Everybody in the bullpen with me was shocked. Like, I just stood up and I just said yes to 20 years, like nothing. Um, and I told him, yeah, like, look, you and I both know the truth behind this case, right? Like, what are we up here trying to do? We're trying to get leniency. This is it. I'm getting the minimum. Like, what else can I do? It'll be a Hail Mary to try to throw and get a second degree and get it dropped even more. I'll take the 20. It is. And I took it. Um, I went back into the court, took the 20 years. I apologized to the victim's family. I apologized to my family. Um, and I accepted it. Now, in the federal system, we call that acceptance of responsibility. And even in the federal sentencing guidelines, it can result in a lower sentence. Not necessarily a lot lower sentence, but someone who accepts responsibility for their criminal actions poses far less threat of repeat criminal behavior than someone who is defiant, belligerent, the, all these signs of continuing violentization. Yeah, so I took the time. After that, I was able to see my family. I was able to see my girlfriend at the time. Um, and I was, you know, obviously we were all crying. And I told them, you know, I'll be home soon. I'll be home soon. And, yeah, I asked for a month's stay um, to see my family because I didn't know which prison I was going to get sent to. I didn't know if my family was going to be able to visit me. Um, and a month later, I made my journey on to Stateville um, through Joliet. And Jolly, going into Joliet and going into Stateville, oh, my God. I thought I was scared in, in county. But going to prison, you see nothing but metal bars. You see nothing but a bunch of guards with a lot of guns, um, rifles and shotguns. Um, you walk in and there's nothing but grown men around you. Um, all of them had a lot of muscles. <laughs> they were very big. Uh, yeah, that, that was something else. I remember when I finally got to Stateville. And I was assigned my cell and I'm walking down the walk and all you see is concrete and steel and you make it to the building and you see that it's four stories and you walk in and you have to go up the stairs to the fourth floor, which was referred to as a gallery. And you're walking down your, the gallery with your cart, with your two boxes and your mattress. And as you're walking down this gallery on the left side and right side, there's bars, but on the left side, you can see the windows where there's a catwalk and there's a guy walking around up there with a shotgun and on the right side, you don't want to look because you're going to see people in their cells. And some of them are pooping. Some of them are taking the bath. Some of them are sleeping or reading. And you walk all the way down to your cell. And then once you walk in your cell, you hear the pretty rattling sound of the cell being locked. And this is the beginning of the next 19 years of my life. And right there, once again, it was starting from scratch. Um, day one all over again, I have to reestablish myself in a new way. I have to talk about my past and let's see if something bad doesn't happen. Well, it took a couple months, um, after I got there that I finally talked about my past. Um, my thought process was let them to get, get let them get to know me for who I am just as Michael, this 19 year old kid. And then after they get to know me, then I'll tell them who I am. Cause eventually they're going to find out and it's better that they find out from you than from someone else. Still a little guy. Yes. Yeah. No, I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't still five, five, still where I probably gained like five pounds. Yeah. So one day we go to Chow, it's dinner time. And when we go over there, uh, I started talking to one of the guys. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to send you some paperwork. I need to talk to you about something. And we could talk in the morning. Um, when they call yard, he's like, yeah, 
And like, so if you can't just keep it to yourself, he's like, no, not a problem. And this guy had status for my former gang. And I go to the cell, I get the envelope, put on my legal paperwork concerning my case. Um, I seal it, I send it to him. He gets it, he opens it, he reads it. We come out the next morning. First thing I tell him is, I'm sorry I didn't say nothing. I, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. I just want you guys to get to know me first. As you can tell, I'm not running from anything. And whatever you guys decide, it is what it is. Um, the one thing I will tell you is that I'm not going to go to protective custody. Uh, meaning that oftentimes in a gang, when you do something wrong or you leave, you may be given a break. And the break is for you to go to protective custody, which is get out of general population and go where everybody is there because they're going to be killed if they stay in general population because they told on somebody because of the type of case they have or they might have stole from the wrong person or whatever in their time in, in prison. Um, and that was just a mark of shame that I couldn't live with. Um, I was willing to live with any outcome that they came up with but that. So then uh, he's like, all right, I'll see what's, what's up. So once again, about two, three days pass. That's how we come to the yard. Um, and I go to the yard. And sure enough, I see them in their little groups and I have to walk up to one of them. And the other groups look like they're positioned for me not to run away um, or go get help from the guard or anything like that. So I walk up to them and they ask me what's going on and I tell them everything and I apologize to them. And I told them, whatever you guys decide, I'm okay with that and I'm gonna accept it. Um, if you want me to go somewhere or whatever it is, um, but I'm not gonna go to PC because I can't, I just can't do that. And they're like, okay. They talked about it, told me to wait. And I come back and I don't know if it was by the grace of God or what, but they just punched me in my shoulder and told me I was okay. That they respected everything that I did the way I did and everything came back clean on me. Um, I think what really saved me was the fact that I was a 19-year-old kid and a lot of them looked at me as their son or their little brother. Um, by this time, I had developed a very um, charismatic and um, joking way about me. And being a kid in Stateville or in any other Max prison, you're like a shining light to these guys that don't have a life and they're going to die in prison. They can't see their children. They can't see their nephews and their nieces. Uh, most of them have lost all those relationships anyways. So I think, I think honestly, like that was the part that saved me. Well, and you were a stand-up guy. You were a stand-up guy in the gang, but then you were a stand-up guy in leaving the gang. Yeah, not, not so many people take that route. They actually try to like maneuver their way. Um, they're trying to be slick and stuff like that. That could be taken very disrespectfully instead of just being forthright. Yeah, so I left the gang. And like I said, I was just in a journey of self-discovery. And I kept trying to study on my own and ask questions uh, to any uh, anybody that was older than me that knew about life or seemed to know about it. Um, by the time I transferred, um, after being there two and a half years, I think I figured out who I was um, and who, who I wanted to be. I think that I figured out that I was the person that my mother intended me to be. Um, she raised me with a lot of love. She always raised me with a... Um, with a way of thinking of others first. Um, and that that's just who I became. And my purpose in life was to be there for others. And when I went to the next institution, I was trying to go to school. It took me actually seven years to get into school. I didn't have my GD or high school diploma, but because of my time, I couldn't be allowed into school any sooner. Um, and I was helping people. I was mentoring them. I was tutoring them. Um, 
I became a certified peer educator. I finally got into school. What does a certified peer educator mean? So I became a certified peer educator through the Illinois Department of uh, Public Health. And what that meant was that I was certified to facilitate um, and to present information regarding to HIV, AIDS, hepatitis A, B, and C, and sexually transmitted infections. And I would do that in several different classes in prison. Um, and then I got my GD and uh, I got that pretty fast. And then I, I enrolled in community college. But how long did it take you before you were into the program, the GED program? It took me over seven years. I think it was uh, 2005 or 2006 when I finally got in. Yeah, so that was seven years without any type of formal education, even though I kept educating myself on my own. Like I studied math and everything on my own as well, the basic stuff, as well as you know philosophy and everything else. Um, so when I got into school, I was really good at writing. I was really good at reading. I was really good at comprehension, mathematics, and everything. Um, I got a pretty high score on my test. Um, I was the first one to finish uh, the GD test when I took it. Um, I got into community college. That journey started. That journey took about probably seven or eight years just because it was so difficult for me to get uh, mandatory classes. Tell me about that. What institution were you at where you were able to go to community college? It started in Mount Sterling, Illinois. Um, that That's where I was uh, and where I started, but they offered so few classes. So I was only able to take two classes each semester. Um, there's four semesters a year. Sometimes I would be able to take a third one. Um, and then sometimes they would stop because of lockdown. So they put us on lockdown, nobody could come out, no teachers could come in, so you couldn't finish the class. Uh, and then from there, I went to Danville, Danville, Illinois. Um, and there, they had more educational opportunities. And there's where I was able to ramp up. Um, I got there in 2011. Danville stands out for that. Yeah, Dan Danville is one of the few prisons that they have a lot of educational courses. So they offer Danville River Community College. They have the Education Justice Project from the University of Illinois. The Education Justice Project. Yes. People should remember that. Yes, we'll come because, back to that. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you have a Bible College, which is a Bible seminary school. Um, and then you just have uh, all type of um, classes from clinical services substance abuse, anger management, lifestyle redirection, and so on and so on. And not only that, but they have uh, what they refer to as an inmate-led um, edu educational wings called the building blocks. Now, this is dramatically different than the opportunities that are available in most Illinois prisons yeah. or prisons nationwide. So that existed the last year before I left in 2018 before I was released in Danville. Yeah, and it was completely different where people are allowed to be out their cell almost all the time. They're allowed to engage in uh, educational opportunities on the wing for about 10 to 12 hours out the day. So they don't have to actually leave the wing to get a lot of education. They have a lot of stuff on financial literacy, on investing, on starting a business and several different things, even life skill classes they have on the wing. And you, you always have mentors around, people that you could just pick their brain if you're having a problem or if you're curious about something, which is extremely unique and something that didn't exist basically my whole bit. And I never had an opportunity to join or be a part of. I was basically that for others um, in a way that I found it kind of odd because I never had that for myself. I never had a mentor. I never had a tutor, but yet I was everybody's mentor and everybody's tutor. Um, yeah, so I got to Danville. I finished finding my associates. This Your associate's degree, college yeah, degree. In science and arts. 
in um, prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I only had a couple of B's throughout all those years. So my GPA was pretty high. And then came the Education Justice Project in 2014. This is a space I did not initially want to be a part of. Um, they had been there for a few years. Um, and this is something I think that we got to think about because it goes into a broader um, aspect of prison and what it does to people. So in prison, ever since the first day the cuffs were put on me on the street until the day I was released in 2018, I was always viewed, treated as, um, and expected to be the worst decision of my life. I was always viewed and treated as a criminal. And no matter how much good I did and how much bad I never did in prison, I was still a criminal. I was never to be trusted. I was always to be viewed as I was scheming something. And this is the way that the correctional officers are indoctrinated, right? There's a way that they're trained that everybody that has an ID and an ID number is and owns a blue shirt is a criminal. And they're always plotting to do something and they're always trying to get away with something. So that's the way I was always treated by staff. And most of the teachers that come in have that mindset as well. Uh, my educational journey uh, in prison, most of it was just memorize and regurgitate when asked. That's it. I wasn't encouraged to be a free thinker, critical thinker, or anything like that. So fast forward to 2014, and I seen the people coming in from the Education Justice Project, University of Illinois, and they made me uncomfortable. I seen how they had, so. yeah, I seen how they moved, and I used to be in the education building a lot because I was a peer educator and all that. And I used to talk to them and have small, you know, very short conversations with them. They treated me as a human being. They viewed me as an intellect. They were curious about the things that I was teaching and the way that I viewed them and why. And it made me uneasy. This made you uneasy to be treated like a human being. To be treated. An intellect. An intellect, a student. It made me uncomfortable. Can you explain that? Well... At this time, 16 years of my life had passed. And I guess I had been socially conditioned to be treated and viewed and spoken to in such a way um, that when other people didn't fall in line with that train of thought or that way to express themselves, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to respond. For someone to come up to you, really sincere, care about you and ask you how your day is going because they care, to ask you what are you up to because they're curious about what good you're doing. Instead of what are you doing that, you know, sneaky, that's, you know, illegal, that's this, that, the other, it made me uncomfortable. And then when I would have to explain myself, what made you want to do this? What I didn't know how to respond because no one ever asked me that. All these years in school, nobody asked me why was I going to school? Why did I want to take that class? Why did I read this or that? No one ever asked me that, you know, and now I was being asked this. So it made me so, so uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I didn't know what to do with it. So what strikes me about this is that these were educators that were coming to, to speak to you. And they were treating you as a human being. And this was preparing you to transition to the real world and be successful in making that transition as you re-enter community and, and family life. If this had never happened to you before you left prison, what do you think would be different? So 
And like I said, this was right before I got into EJP. And I'll fast forward to the end of EJP, um, just what I got out of it and what it did to me. I credit EJP with not saving my life, right? Um, I did that on my own when I was 18 years old and I changed my life. But I, cr I credit them with saving my humanity. Um, because without them, I don't know what type of person I would have been out here. So eventually I ended up making the decision to join EJP uh, in 2014. Again, this is the Education Justice Project. Yes, from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And I got into several spaces. I got into their trauma-informed space, CAVE, Community Anti-Violence Education. I got into their educational space, um, Language Partners, which I became a certified English as Second Language instructor. I was teaching full immersion English to, you know, the so-called inmates that didn't speak English, that were non-native English speakers, that were from Mexico, Honduras, and so on. Um, and I got into their regular credit classes and their reading groups. Um, in these spaces, once again, I felt so uncomfortable. I would always try to hide, but the way they set up the class, you cannot hide. Oftentimes you're sitting in a circle, so it doesn't give you a corner to go hide in. Um, and then the few times that I could hide, like in the language partners, when there were, when other incarcerated individuals were teaching a lesson and I'll go try to hide in the corner, they would find me and they would ask me, they would greet me, extend their hand, shake my hand and ask me how my day was going and what am I getting and what am I struggling with? And it made me really uncomfortable to have a man or a woman that was not an officer to be that close to me. Um, and the weeks passed and then it became more and more normal. In that space, since day one. Now, that wasn't an accident that they were treating you that way. That nah. was part of their deliberate educational experience. strategy and, and experience and approach. Yeah, their, their approach is a holistic human-student um, relationship where you engage these individuals as academics. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. As students, as academic as you would someone on campus, because that is our campus, those classrooms. In prison. In prison, yes. So, um, yeah, what, 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 the, the thing that was really different besides that was the fact that we were encouraged to challenge everything, including ourselves. Challenge each other, challenge the material, challenge the instructor, and challenge yourself, which in other academic space, I had never been heard that. You never challenge anything. You shut up, you accept facts, and you regurgitate them at test time, and that's it, you're done. Um, yeah, and that expanded my mind so much. Like the first question on the first day of the reading group after we had read was, what stood out to you? And then after I said it, they would be like, why? And I didn't know the answer. But I read it and I understood what I read, but I just didn't know how to formulate an answer for that because I had never been asked that before. Um, yeah, and the years passed and I was there for four years and I racked up several credits. Um, I was a part of a lot of different workshops, reading groups, um, extra spaces that they had. I was always in their library studying something. Um, I got used to using a computer, which is something very rare for someone incarcerated. Um, I became a certified uh, trauma-informed care facilitator at the University of Illinois, thanks to the cave space. And I want to come back to that, by the way. Yeah, and th that taught me so much. And it put me in such a place where I actually had a healthy self-esteem. I actually valued myself and understood myself. The thing with cave... And the unique aspect of that is that I, that was the first time that I really learned about trauma in an in-depth way. And through these guided dialogues, I was able 
to confront a lot of my trauma, to give my trauma language, to understand why I thought the things that I thought, why I felt the things that I thought, and how that affected all my relationships and everything I saw. I never knew that trauma was the lens which I viewed the world through. And I understood it through that. And I was able to help other people through their trauma. And that that EJP experience is what prepared me to come home in a healthy way. Well, violence, I have made the analogy to being a disease. And to a very large extent, trauma is the carrier of that disease. And we can't solve the problem of violence, particularly gun violence, without solving the problem of the trauma that is the carrier of that disease. Because this is just common in the background of people who are involved in gun violence is that they have experienced, usually early on like you, this chronic trauma of violence in the world around them, including in their own families many times, not in yours apparently. But it is very common for domestic violence to lead to street violence and uh, and violent people ultimately. Yeah, it is. Um yeah, so this is the, these are the things that actually prepared me to be out here and to actually succeed out here. Um, the other thing was that through EJP and a few of the programs I was a part of in prison, I actually was able to develop relationships and connections out here. Um, Eddie Bocanegra is a person that I met while I was still in prison. He was the guest of our last uh, or two episodes ago. Yeah, this is someone. And what Eddie Bocanegra did for me and it's not that he did anything special. He was just himself. He talked to me like, you know, a normal human being. And he told me, when you get out, you know, contact me and we'll see if we can find you a job or something like that. But what Eddie Bocanegra did for me was he showed me that I could actually be successful out here. Here's someone that comes from the same neighborhood. Here's someone who was incarcerated. Here's someone who came out with a thought of wanting to get back. And look how far he went. And how successful he was. And that gave me the roadmap in order to come out here and succeed. So in 2018, when I was released, is where the next chapter of my life starts, right? In part two of this episode to follow, Michael shares the experience and challenges he faced upon release from prison, including barriers due to his status as a convicted felon and how he became a victim advocate, responding to the scenes of shootings to assist victims and their families deal with the trauma of gun violence. He will discuss his work as a restorative justice practitioner as he and I dive into the topic of restorative justice and other ways in which our current approach to crime and criminal justice can and should be improved to be more effective and responsive to the needs of victims, perpetrators of harm, and communities. So, be sure to listen to the rest of Michael Tafoya's story and his deep insights gained from his own lived experience, higher education, and professional experience and observation. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told. 
voices that need to be heard.